Hi, I'm Grant Wall, and welcome to the Planet Football Podcast, where I go in-depth with the most intriguing people in the world of soccer. On today's show, Fox Sports lead soccer play-by-play broadcaster John Strong joins me to talk about his journey and his process as he has become the English-language voice of American soccer at the age of 31. I could not be more proud of the work that we do at Fox, and I stand the work that we do at Fox up against anything anyone else has done, whether it's an MLS broadcast, our Champions League work, whether it's this upcoming World Cup, and I can tell you, we're going to blow the doors off. All that and my thoughts on soccer coming up. Take one. Here we go with my three thoughts on soccer. First up, this is the week when you realize just how merciless the pressure is at the top of European soccer. On Tuesday, one of Real Madrid or Bayern Munich is going to go out in the Champions League quarterfinals. Even if both of these clubs win their domestic leagues, which is likely to happen, a sizable section of their fan bases will look at the season as a failure if they don't win Champions League. Then there's Barcelona, which has to try to make lightning strike twice and overturn a 3-0 deficit in Wednesday's return leg against Juventus, followed up by Sunday's Clasico game at Real Madrid, where the host could put Barca in a really bad spot in La Liga, which is to say, solidly in second place. Do you wonder why Luis Enrique has had enough of managing Barca? Maybe it's because he has won eight trophies in two and a half seasons of managing Barca, but still can't keep his fans happy. Take two. Next up, this Saturday at 9 a.m. Eastern, two of U.S. soccer's biggest stars will meet each other in a Champions League semifinal. Carly Lloyd's Manchester City will take on Alex Morgan's Lyon in the first leg of their tie in Manchester. It remains to be seen whether it's available on U.S. TV, but it's likely to be available on Man City's Facebook page. I'm psyched to see what transpires here. To me, Lloyd and Morgan have a relationship that's a little like the one Landon Donovan and Clint Dempsey had. There's mutual respect for each other's talents, and they have combined to do some cool things together on the field for the national team. But there's also a rivalry with an edge. Lloyd has said in the past that she would never have done anything like the swimsuit shoots, which is a not-so-veiled reference to Morgan, and Morgan isn't exactly best friends with Lloyd. That's okay, this is pro sports, but understand there are several reasons why both players have circled Saturday on their calendars. Take three. Finally, this week's interview is with John Strong. John is my colleague at Fox Sports, so I won't even pretend to be impartial here. But let's just say that I think he's an immense broadcasting talent who has done great work announcing MLS, the U.S. national teams, and European soccer. John puts in the time year-round on this sport, but he's also pointing toward what he calls his Everest, the World Cup, where he will make an even bigger name for himself in 2018. I hope you enjoy this interview with John as much as I did. Our guest this week is, in my opinion, the English-language voice of American soccer. At the insanely young age of 31, John Strong is the lead play-by-play announcer for Fox Sports on its MLS and U.S. men's national team broadcasts. He also does stuff from Europe, will be heavily involved in Confederations Cup this summer and World Cup 2018 from Russia. You can also find him at John Strong on Twitter. John, thanks for joining me. We had to kick a guy off who was in Philadelphia who had not tweeted for like five years to get on that the other week, <laughs> having been strong MLS for a while. I didn't realize you could do that, but apparently 
we at Fox have some strings we can pull at Twitter. So no, Grant, I I appreciate you having me on. As, as I was saying before, I've enjoyed. You've had World Cup winners. You've had American soccer legends. Now you got bald kids from Portland on. So I appreciate you uh, <laughs> having enough interest. That or no one's returning your calls this week. But I uh, look forward to chatting with you. It's great to have you on. Uh, I was actually going to ask later on about the message we should take from John Strong MLS going to just John Strong. Is this uh, part of your your global conquering plan? It was. Uh, I'm I'm trying to find it. most of my answers. I'm sort of self editing of like how can I not upset as enough people as possible. Uh, the the well originally I was strong at night because that was the name of my incredibly unlistened to nightly radio show here in Portland uh, back in the day. And then strong MLS was sort of me trying to to break into you know transcend the I'm just a Timbers announcer to I'm doing national stuff and then this was more honestly it was more like it's just my name like it just felt like this weird esoteric thing um, and then yeah I mean I'm doing I'm doing other stuff but I I will never apologize for um, or, or anything else sort of my affiliation and love. Uh, an emotional connection to MLS. So it was definitely nothing to do with that. We should do a history of your changing Twitter handles. I didn't know Strong at Night existed. That I sounds like, vaguely suggestive. Yes, 100%. I had it for like two years without realizing I had it. The guy at our radio station set it up, and it took me another year to figure out how to use it. And I, won, I remember one night, like during the show, I'm like, oh, what is this notifications tab? And it's like, oh, people have been tweeting at me for like a year trying to interact on the show, and I'm sitting here complaining I'm not getting any phone calls. So I, I am a the opposite of early adopter, I think is the way to phrase it. Well, there's a lot I want to talk about here. Uh, I want to start, though, just by diving into your story and uh, how someone at the age of 31 has gotten to this very national position already and, and what you did to get here. Where, where does this start, the John Strong story? Yeah, it's a hell of a lot of lucky breaks. Um, I, I think... So it's sort of two, and this will be a long answer if you want it to be. Sure. Um, the, there's sort of two parallel paths. So the first one is being a sports broadcaster, being a play-by-play announcer is pretty much the only thing I've ever wanted to do with my life. I had a, a brief flirtation when I was like six with being a shuttle bus driver at the airport because I just loved being <laughs> at the airport. My parents still bring that up. And then there was sort of a little bit of interest in like stadium architecture when I was in like junior high. But pretty much um, from a really, really young age, you know, I growing up in Portland, coming of age to be old enough to be a sports fan in the early 90s when the Trailblazers went to two NBA finals in three years. Like that was everything. The Trailblazers were my first love. And, you know, this is a time. And, and even then you're speaking to a lot of people who too are, are even younger than I am that don't remember this. This is a time before games were regularly on television. You would maybe have a couple times a year the Blazers would be on the the old NBA on NBC, John Tesh, Marv Albert, uh, Sunday afternoon kind of thing. Yeah. And then a lot of the games, the Blazers were actually ahead of the t- of their um, the, the time in putting games on like pay-per-view cable, which I would get to watch a couple a year if I'd like strong-arm my parents or go to a friend's house. But by and large, every single night, uh, oftentimes as I'm sort of going to sleep, listening to the Blazers games on the radio with Bill Shonley as the announcer. And, and Bill Shonley is a, is a huge figure here in Portland. He was the, the radio announcer when they first were an expansion team in 1970 up until sort of a really ugly, um, they kicked him out in the mid-90s. Uh, and he did TV and radio. And so it's like every night, I think it was the romanticism of being connected to your team via 
someone's voice and the word pictures they could create and the emotions they could sort of intone over the radio. Those things just really connected with me from a very young age. Beyond the larger, broader picture of just, I was such a huge sports fan my whole life and I had no interest in a real job. So part of it then was me sort of pursuing that. And so I got to the point in high school where I was like, I really want to, there was a, a, my freshman year of high school, a teacher had written back on a thing. I had a good voice for radio. It was like a, a, a communications class. And that was when the light bulb was like, oh my gosh, I could actually do this. And then the big break forward was my senior year of high school. I was pretty sure I was going to get cut from the soccer team. Very rightly so. I was like the third string goalkeeper. I was terrible. Um, and I ended up getting connected with, and this is the summer of 2002. So again, this is sort of leading edge of high speed as compared to dial-up internet. This is the leading edge of any sort of original content of, on the internet. And it was a website that, you know, pay us like 30 bucks a game hmm. and you stream your high school's games online. So, and I dragged in my buddy, Eric, who now I drag along to Copa America and Women's World Cup as like my stats and research Sherpa. Um, and we started calling our high school football games online. And I mean, to again, People had no idea what we were doing. There were three people listening. It was my mom, it was his mom, and, and a kid who had mono who couldn't go to the games. And the, the high school principal told my mom later, he said yes just basically to get us out of his office. And he's like, there's no way they're going to follow through with this. But we did. We did all the high school games, and they ended up making this run to the state championship game. Uh, we did basketball games. We did a couple of away games, which was a hoot. And so, you know, I'm getting to college games in high school. I go down to college, same sort of thing. I, I end up at the campus radio station. I get a massive break when the the coach of the brand new women's lacrosse team has promised all of these parents of, of girls she's recruiting from the Northeast that they're going to put the games online. So there I am for three years calling women's lacrosse online. I knew nothing of the sport. I didn't even know it was a different sport than the men's game until like a week <laughs> before the first game. And Jen Larson's her name, and she's like teaching me. And I'm like, oh, that's way different than I you know would watch on TV. And, and from that, I got to call softball games at Oregon on both the campus radio station and online. Got to call soccer games, did junior hockey for two years, did a lot of high school state championships, uh, internships at, at radio stations and with the Timbers and the Portland Beavers baseball team. I mean, anything I could get my hands on um, and, 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 you know, getting an opportunity to work in radio in Portland and, and just sort of all these things. So, so the other parallel path to that is, and again, this is where a lot of right place, right time. I mean, I'm in that age where had I had these interests 10 years earlier, I might not have pursued soccer. I might not have been mm -hmm. interested in soccer, but it was like that sweet spot of, 94 World Cup and MLS and the FIFA video games was huge. I, 13th birthday, and I got FIFA 98 Road to the World Cup. Like that's how I learned huh. who all these teams were and all these, you know, because it was a time before it was really accessible. It was my junior year of high school that I got my parents to finally get digital cable, and I'm watching Fox Sports World and. And I remember taking the SAT and sort of half paying attention because it was the final day of the French season and Lyon was playing Lens for the title. I'm like, I'm just going to get this test done and go home and watch this thing. And, <laughs> and so it became this just critical mass of falling hard for soccer mm. for a variety of influences and then able to, you know, as in college, sort of merge it and get on with the Timbers. And, and they had had a, a radio budget which had been slashed in 06 and it was just online and Andy McNamara. Um, who's who's a, a very important figure sort of in my growth that doesn't necessarily 
get the credit because he's he's not doing this type of stuff anymore. But he was a longtime voice of the Timbers, and he brought me on just to sort of help out with the webcasting. And then it was just every year with something new and um, you know getting the opportunity at first just to like host the pregame, maybe do a postgame interview, and then fill in calling games, mm-hmm. uh, which was incredibly exciting for me to actually be calling a Timbers game. And then we started putting games on the radio in 2009. My program director basically came to me one day and was like, is this MLS thing going to happen? And I, lying completely, oh, totally, absolutely. (laughs) And he said, is it going to be big? Again, I didn't know. Yes, totally, it's going to be huge. He goes, well, I think we want to maybe jump in on it now so that if it goes to MLS, we're already there. And so we're putting USL games on the radio. And um, I had preseason 2010, year before we went to MLS, and they were trying a bunch of people out on TV, and I remember, I remember the conversation vividly. Merritt Paulson in the press box at Merlot Field, uh, they were doing a preseason game at the University of Portland, and he says, uh, uh, "You know, we want to try you out on TV this year," which was sort of stunning. My my dream plan was if Andy gets the TV job, that I can slide in, I can call the MLS games on radio, and <laughs> maybe maybe in my 30s I can jump over and call games on TV, and maybe in my 40s. I can do do some national stuff. Like that'd be perfect. Like that's the normal right. career path. Right. And then yeah, I did it and I didn't stink and and you know, I got doing the the Timbers TV games. At the end of 2011, NBC is the has the rights to MLS and I'd gotten to know Arlo White because he was the Sounders announcer and so we had, mm-hmm. you know, spent some time together. And and he sort of suggested my name as a, they're looking for a young kid, an American to be a backup and and to be there when he's at the Olympics to call MLS games. Well, that was a pretty short list in 2012. Mm -hmm. And so there I am getting to do NBC games and, you know, Fox soccer, same sort of thing. There was a sort of, they got some new bodies in there and it was like, we want to find someone that's young and American and can call games, but can also host stuff. Mm -hmm. Again, pretty short list in 2012. And I get an email out of the blue one night sitting at my desk from Jason Wormser, one of my bosses now at Fox, which was like, you know, Fox sports world, Fox Soccer Channel, again, people forget or they just sort of have this unfortunately negative perception. That was huge for all of us. I mean, what, yeah. a, what an important, important pillar of American soccer growth. I get to go work for them now. So just, I guess, a lot of right place, right time. And every time a door was open, just trying to work as hard as I possibly could to be good and to stay there. Because, and even I feel this today now. Every opportunity, it's like, oh my gosh, I, I, I literally cannot believe that I'm getting to do this now. And I don't want to give it up. I don't, you know what I mean? I want to keep yeah. doing it. So, so yeah, I, I, there's a long list of people and opportunities. And like I said, just, just crazy coincidence that's led to this. And so now my challenge is to stay here for at least until my kids are through college and I can pay for that. So, <laughs> you know, whatever else comes, you never know. But that, that's sort of, as long as that answer was a somewhat abridged version of how I got here. Yeah, that was great. Uh, I, what I find interesting is that even those of us who are now considered soccer guys have experience in most cases in other sports. So for me, that was basketball, yeah. where I started out Sports Illustrated before I went to soccer full time. Bob Bradley wrote an interesting column uh, for the Players Tribune not long ago about how so many of his influences were outside of soccer um, from basketball coaches to hockey to other sports and yet he is a soccer guy now 
that may be a particularly American thing, and I don't think it's a bad thing. I, certainly Bob Bradley was making the case that all of these influences in other sports and other think from other thinkers and coaches and doers has really helped his career. And you mentioned Bill Shonley having a big influence on you. Did In what ways did he influence your style, I guess, starting out and even now? I think with Bill, it was more the inspiration of wanting to do that, wanting to be that connection with the fans. And it's a very romantic idea because the landscape has changed so incredibly much in, in even the last 10 years, let alone 20, let alone 30. Um, and so I think with, with Bill Shonley, it was more just this sense of, I mean, he was this iconic figure. He was the Blazers to so many of us who weren't necessarily getting to go to games or watch them on TV. What's fun is that he actually sings in the church choir with my mom. And ah. so I've gotten to know him through that over the last couple of years, which has been an absolute blast. Um, and so, and the, and the other one, too, a guy named Jerry Allen, who for many, many years and, and still is the voice of the Oregon Ducks, and I grew up an Oregon mm-hmm. Ducks fan, and his voice sort of just defining for me Saturday morning, driving to Austin Stadium with my grandfather, going to a game, and, and like I said, that romanticism of what a sports broadcaster can be. Now, the dynamic is entirely different when you're a national broadcaster as opposed to a local team announcer mm-hmm. because the relationship with the fans is different, the way you use your emotions are different. So I think with with Bill Shonley and Jerry Allen, it was more just sort of the concept of, okay, this is definitely what I want to do with my life. And then the the it sort of diverges from there and the influences. And I would agree with you in the same way that you know, it's funny, my wife, when she was an assistant coach at Oregon and she was recruiting, she would always say she liked to find players, girls who had played other sports as opposed to hmm. just done soccer because there's all sorts of things you learn from those other influences, whether it's footwork or how to use your body or reading the game, whatever else. So there are absolutely, as much as I, I've been heavily influenced by, you know, the the electronic voice of John Motson on the FIFA video games and the mm-hmm. real voice of Martin Tyler for many years and Andres Cantor and watching games on Univision, even though I speak so little Spanish and it's a huge regret of mine, I didn't take Spanish in high school. But also, too, influences around me of you know, Al Michaels and Dick Enberg and Keith mm-hmm. Jackson and Pat Summerall and Joe Buck now, who I, I've got a really increasing appreciation for. I love reading his book over the winter and, and understanding too as much as I think the the obvious comparison people tend to make is between soccer and hockey. And and I loved calling hockey and it's absolutely what I would do if I couldn't do soccer. And there are parts of that that I use in my soccer calls, but also too, I actually think there's a lot of similarities between baseball. When you're calling it on television, and those and those moments when stuff is happening, but you don't really need to be calling it, and so let's weave in a little bit of storytelling. Let's weave in a little bit of conversation, which I think is a big part of of what I try to do. And that came from, you know, working as an intern for the Portland Beavers and Rich Burke, who was their announcer for a long time, who was a huge sort of Vince Scully acolyte, and, and called games in that way, teaching me how to how to weave in and out of sort of play by play and storytelling how to go from nothing's really happening to, oh my gosh, everything's happening in a nice sort of smooth, controlled way. So yeah, I've got a million of these different things and they're not all just soccer. And I think, but that that's what American soccer culture is, right? It's, it's we're going to be different from everywhere else and we're going to have influences that are unique to anywhere else. And by the way, I think that's a really good thing. Now you did touch on this, but I feel like I should mention to listeners here on gold.com, Seth Vertellini did a really good story on you recently. 
And part of that involved you talking about having three different types of soccer influences when it comes to announcing. Do you want to explain that a little more? Yeah, so, and some of this is probably generalizing, but it's it's the way that I tend to think of it, of, of three different styles of broadcast. Style number one is what you would say is sort of English soccer. So again, John Motson, Martin Tyler, um, obviously has a, a huge, perhaps outsized influence on American soccer coaching and, uh, culture and our perception of what broadcasting is, which is a whole different subject that I can get myself in a ton of trouble talking about. Um, but generally, yeah, it's a little bit more withdrawn. It's a little less emotional. That that classic more sort of BBC style of of let the let the picture speak for themselves. Don't sort of insert. Don't make yourself the story here. Um, you know, be a little more backed off. Sort of that that university lecturer sort of mentality. Sometimes I think in the style. Um, and then also too, which by the way couldn't be entirely different, at least speaking stereotypically, the Spanish language style, which which is much more the norm around the world. It was it's been interesting the last couple of years, as I've been exposed to more and more of the soccer world beyond just you know the Premier League, um, how much that much more emotional, emotive style of broadcasting is the norm around the world. It's like the guy, the the Iceland announcer, who we all fell in love with during the European Championship, or <laughs> You know, I love prepping for Columbia at the Copa America last year and on uh, Caracol, one of the networks down there. Like when Columbia scores a goal, they start playing music and like they put a reverb on the guy's mic and it's like a 45 <laughs> second goal call. Like the play is restarted and he's still going. Like, so, so, you know, that's much more the norm you find around the world. And that idea of, I think as I said in, to Seth, the the announcer is sort of living each kick of the ball in the same way that the fan at home is. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the American style of sports broadcasting, which again covers a very wide spectrum. And I mentioned some of those big influences I've had. And one of the ways I tend to think of it is weaving in a lot more of the sort of who these guys are. Because mm-hmm. I think in general, as an American sports broadcaster, you get a lot more access to players and coaches. You know, when we come in to do an MLS game, and it follows the pattern of how NFL broadcasts work um, different with NBA and things like that that are everyday sports. Mm -hmm. We go in and we sit down behind closed doors with both coaches. We sit down with players. We get answers and we get information and we get access that, yeah, other writers aren't necessarily getting, let alone when you can, you know, when you're doing a Premier League game, you're not getting that. You know, when, when you're doing other sports around the world, you're not getting that. And that's um, which I love because it allows me then to really tell the story of, of who these athletes are and, and take you a little bit inside and, again, I think connect you a little bit more with what's going on, whether it's just the personal stories or just a little bit more of an insight mm-hmm. into you know how coaches and players want to play the game. Maybe it's tactics, maybe it's strategies, the type of stuff they wouldn't feel comfortable talking about sort of in a press conference the day before, but knowing we won't say it until the game is already going, maybe they're a little bit more willing to open the door a little bit more. And and, and that's and so using that style, um, so I, I tend to think of it in any given time, if you think of it sort of as a triangle of those three influences, I'm sort of floating around somewhere inside that triangle, depending mm-hmm. on the moment and, and how the game's going and what sort of a game it is. You know, I'll call a regular season MLS game different then I'll call the second leg of the Champions League quarterfinal between Bayern Munich and Real Madrid. Part of it is because the, we get there's less information, there's obviously less access, but also, too, 
you know what? It's a crazy good crowd, and this is a big game. I don't need to do a whole lot here. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't need to do a whole lot of selling. Um, so yeah, I, I tend to I tend to think a lot about those types of things, and it's something I think that's really important of of how we do our work is that after every game, we'll get on the phone during the week and we'll go over in minutia. And, and I think you've been on these calls because you've done some of the games. Yes. Yeah. And we'll go through little specific things and this word choice here and, and doing this there. And you think about the really fine details of how you call these games and why you do what you do. Um, and so I think about these things a lot and I think it's important because I think that's what ideally makes you better at what you do. Yeah, I wanted to get into kind of your process and you know, feel free to go into some detail here on sure. what do you do to get ready for a broadcast each week or how does a typical week go for you? And that includes looking backward at the previous broadcast. Yeah, I, I don't know if a typical week exists, um, but generally speaking, um, going into a game and also specific to MLS, because again, it's a little bit different for a, a European game. It's different for international matches. Um, but for an MLS game, my mentality is, you know, when I was the Timbers announcer, I was an expert in the Timbers, and I was bringing that information to the Timbers fans. So now my challenge is when I'm doing a game for Fox, I want to become an expert in both teams, mm-hmm. both for the sake of those fans who are listening, because what drives you nuts more than watching your team on a national broadcast, and it's clear the national announcer just does not know your team very well. That drives mm-hmm. you berserk. I, I get that. Um, but also, too, I, we're, you know, we're trying to grow this thing. Uh, we're we're trying... So... My ability to be an expert in both teams for the sake of the of the neutral fan, of the casual fan, and be able as part of that to maybe get you emotionally invested in the team or in the players, that's a big part of how we're trying to grow this. And so what I'll do is I'll, I'll just print out the team's roster, flip it over on the back. I'll go through over the last, say, three weeks in general, whether that's three or four games, and... Everything from, okay, sort of watching a condensed version of the game, what happened in this game, you know, who did they play, how did they play, um, trying to get a sense of who is in and who is out for for form or for injury, any interesting or relevant stats. Be able to sort of, over the last three weeks, really, really know for sure what's going on with this team. And then also, too, try to go through and devour everything I can find of what's being written and talked about about the team. Um, both from a standpoint of, again, understanding those storylines coming into the game for someone who hasn't necessarily been following this team closely, but also, too, um, and, and this is, you get a wide variety of this in MLS, which teams have really good local beat coverage in the newspaper or not, mm-hmm. but just those those little those little stories, the anecdotes, the details, the little things that might end up becoming really useful on air, especially if we're going to be coming in and talking to that player. And I'm, I'm trying to be better at, because I don't think I've been as good as I should be, at trying to give on-air credit for that and be able to say, you know what, Sam McDowell with the Kansas City Star, great feature this morning remember, on Jimmy Madronda, and it turned out that his mom was there watching the game, and she hadn't mm-hmm. been to a game before, and it's something that I wouldn't have known otherwise. Um, and, and then, so that's sort of a team side that I'll go through um, I, I sort of I use stickers. It's sort of a hybrid system that I've I've developed over the years of the American style spotting board mm-hmm. and the more sort of English style sticker system, which is very sort of esoteric to explain both those things. But the idea being is that I've got a Manila folder open in front of me during the game, 
and I've got every player has a little, it's like an address label, you get an office depot. Mm-hmm. And I set it up as the teams are set up in their formation. And on that sticker, every relevant bit of information I might use on air. So the number and the last name are, are sort of in big print. And then how old are they? Where are they from? What's If I have 10 seconds to talk about Kyle Laren, what's his story? Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes that's biographical. Sometimes that's um, statistical in nature with Kyle Laren. He was the rookie of the year. He set this record. All of those things to synthesize, to have down in front of me so that ideally every a- any possible thing that happens on that field to anyone possibly who might see the field because you never know, the backup goalkeeper, the third string right back, I want to be able to tell you why and how. I want to be able to really provide you context and information. Um, you know, something like we did a game the other week in Kansas City, and Seth Sinovic, who's been in the league for eight years, scores a regular season goal for the first time ever. And so by, by being able to tell you that right as it happens, maybe you understand a little bit of why he's celebrating so <laughs> much as he is. Because this guy hasn't done it before. Um, you know, and sometimes you stumble across things. So a great example is that same game. We're talking with Pablo Mastroeni, coach of the Rapids, and uh, he takes us through his lineup, and he says, Courtney Ford, this this young kid, homegrown player, uh, we're going to give him a start, and and you know he's young, but we want to give him a chance, all these things. And he sort of just mentions as part of the answer, he's been through some hardships, so we're excited for him to get the chance. And, and it was sort of towards the end of the conversation, so I didn't really want to dig into that with him, but I just sort of put it in my – because I have like a reporter's notebook, and I'm writing down everything anyone's saying – and I just sort of underline it and circle it. And the next morning, and it took me a while, but I finally dig up this story I've done about him. And it was the story I told on air about this kid. And he's growing up in Kansas City, and his father's abusing him. And he sort of gets away with his mom. And then his mom um, has cancer, and she's driving him two hours each way. to. I mean, it's, it's this amazing story of what this kid has done to get to this point wow. that here he is making his debut in Kansas City. During Child Abuse Prevention Month, which is wow. all over the city, it's, it's like this and, – and you don't uh, – I don't want to be exploitative about it. I don't want to be flippant about it. Like you have to be careful to do that right. the right way. But the idea being that that you know sometimes these things come at you from left field, but I think that's an important part of the story to get you to say, okay, you know, he's not just some random young defender. Like this is a, a guy with a, with an incredible story. And I got feedback of people like, wow, I really want to root for this guy now. So being able to be willing to put that work in and know where to look to find those bits of information, uh, I think is is arguably more important than my ability to just sort of shout out names as guys are kicking the ball around the field. Right. And so then you meet before every game that you do in person with both teams. Yeah, so we'll go in, uh, let's say, a Sunday game. We'll, we'll all sort of filter into town Friday night. Uh, and then Saturday we go to the home team's practice. We'll watch them practice. Um, we'll meet at the facility with the coach and normally three players. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and again, and, and it varies a little bit, team to team, coach to coach. But generally speaking, we've built up a, a, a trust relationship where, yeah, they're willing to share stuff with us uh, that they wouldn't normally share. Uh, the idea being that we use it in the right way, that we don't, uh, you know, let it leak out. But also, too, and my argument is always, you know, coaches or players that complain that, you know, media members, you guys don't know anything or you got the story wrong or all this stuff. Well, then tell us. And, and if you let us in a little bit, then and, and if we know that the, the truth, at least the truth that you're willing to share, and I get that you're not going to open up all the way, that increases the odds we're going to tell the story right 
when we're on air, which I think is incredibly important. I, that, that We put a huge premium on that. And in this era of fake news and all that, I think it's even more important of we're going to put in the time and the effort to get this right and, and to know the story and to know it accurately. Uh, and it also, too, it just sort of helps us because then when we've talked with both teams and so we'll, we'll be with the visiting team normally in the hotel the night before the game. And if we know what both teams and how they're going to play and who they're going to play and maybe a couple ideas of, of things that they've seen on their opponent – that allows us to be able to go back and, and do our, you know, analyst keys to the game. Okay, uh, L.A. and Orlando have both talked about Orlando sort of plays narrow in this diamond. So for L.A., we got to get the ball wide. we got to switch it. And, and Jossie Zardes sort of gives that answer in the pregame interview. So then we can, during the game then, sort of cycle back through that and go, okay, how is that working? Are they doing that well? It gives you, the, as a fan, something to watch for which is specific to this matchup. And I, and I think, again, it's, it's that trying to help you, you know, enjoy the game more and understand more the deeper levels of it. And, and yeah, it's a time-consuming process, and it's an extra day away from home, which adds up over the course of a year. And there are some weeks where we're all being pulled in 18 different directions and we just sort of get on the phone. But I think, again, the, the, the template for us is the NFL. It's Sunday night football, which is the most watched broadcast in this country. It's, you know, what what Fox does in their sort of afternoon game, America's Game of the Week with Joe Buck and Troy Aikman, which is great sports broadcasting. That's the gold standard in this country of not just showing the game, but telling you the story of what's going on. And that's something that and it produces culture clashes, by the way. Um, we've had that issue with with players and coaches who are from or have spent time in Europe where it is the exact opposite. You are, <laughs> they are not going to practice. You're not sitting down with coaches and players. You are under no circumstances getting the starting lineup before, you know, an hour before the game. And so it, it takes time to sort of go through that process. The, the famous story was Thierry Henry, uh, the first ever NBC game. It was NBC that really started this process when they got the MLS rights in 2012. Mm -hmm. And their first game was Red Bulls in Dallas. And Arlo White is is you know the announcer at this time. It's the first game. Like the NBC executives are there. Thierry Henry comes in the meeting room, and he starts. You know what is this? Why am I here? I'm not going to talk to you. Sky Sports doesn't do this. What you know? Just and Arlo steps up and goes, Thierry. We do this because Sunday Night Football does this, and Sunday Night Football is the most watched broadcast in America, and that's what we do here. And it was sort of this begrudging. All right, fine. So fast forward to. Uh, the end of the end was a 14 season before Henri retired, and we meet with him before the second leg in DC in the playoffs. Three years on, we had to kick him out. We had to like Terry, you have to leave now. Your team is eating dinner because he. But he he grew to understand what that was about, and and we aren't trying to crush you. We're not trying to do gotcha journalism. We just we want to know. And, and and he loved you know, and he would sort of weave in and out of. Stuff about his team. By the way, Thierry Henry does not get credit. He knew everyone in this league. He was watching CCL games. I mean, he knew <laughs> everything. And then he'd sort of get into, you know, I remember one time I'm on the bus and Dennis Bergkamp and I are having this discussion on what's more important, the goal or the pass that set it up. You know, and he gets it. So that's a process sometimes with guys. But it's so much fun, too, because, again, it, it's, you know, you're, you're trying to get the story. You're trying to get it accurate. And, and you, you sometimes stumble across little bits of information or anecdotes or things like that that sort of blow you away and I think provides provides real value to people that, that are investing their time to sit down and, and listen to you for two hours.
I'm actually imagining now Thierry Henry, who currently works for Sky Sports, telling everyone over there, this is the way they do it in the States. Dude, he he, he came – I mean, it was the, the agreement was sort of like once a year you get him. Like don't ask for him <laughs> twice. But, but yeah, I mean I, I think you're starting – and by the way, I, you are starting to see that now. Both Fox and NBC especially because they're doing day-to-day have, have I think sort of gone back and tried to push a little bit more. Uh, and NBC has certainly done that, and slowly they're starting to get more access. And I think there is a, an understanding that if done in the right way, you know, there's a listen. At the end of the day, yes, it, it's a smaller soccer culture, but listen, we sort of know what we're doing in this country when it comes to big time pro sports, right? And, and I think that's fair to say. And so, you know, trying to understand that there are things about our American soccer culture which maybe can be exported elsewhere, and maybe can be really good things. Now, one thing that I didn't realize until I started doing some games with you guys on Fox is how much of an influence a guy named Shaw Brown has, a guy, who's, <laughs> a guy who is not in front of the camera, he's behind the camera, but could you explain what Shaw Brown does and, and who he is? Oh my gosh, do we have time for this? Uh, at, at Ipswich Town on Twitter, he loves interacting with people. Uh, he's going <laughs> to kill me for that. Take off, it's Ipswich, it's uh, T-W-N, take off the O. It's like the Welsh spelling. Um, so Shaw is, um, and, and he's been around since the very early days of MLS. I mean, he was around as an intern with ABC in 1994. He tells a great story of shepherding Alexi Lawless in for an interview with Jim McKay during the 94 World Cup, a story for which Alexi has zero recollection, and that caused tension between the two of them for about 10 minutes when that first came up two years ago. Um, so Shaw Shaw was given the lead producer role when NBC got MLS. He, he had been doing a variety of roles for ESPN for a long time. He's been our producer for Fox. He's been, yes, my producer, but also my, my very good friend since 2012 when I first started to break through and get these opportunities. And and again, it's it's one of those roles, and this is true in all sports broadcasting, by the way. That you know, the, the the producer has a very important role. They're the ones that are sort of you know, they're the ones in charge, and and they're the ones that are, um, sort of going through and, and I would say curating the storylines and leading the direction of how the entire show is meant to be going. And Shaw is a very hands-on producer in the sense that he's very active in our ears of reminding us, hey, we heard about this last night. You know, hey Brad, over the the weekend, you know, what do you think about this? And sort of continuing the conversation in our heads to prompt us in ways to continue that conversation on air, because sometimes he's seeing things that we're not, or also, you know, he's looking at things from more of a thirty thousand foot perspective, mm-hmm. and sometimes we're bogged down in the minutia of of just sort of what's in front of us and trying to get it right. And so, um, you know, and and there. Again, it's it's um, Chris Alexopoulos at ESPN uh, has had that role for a long time with them, and, and he and Shaw are good friends. Uh, we've got some wonderful producers at uh, at Fox. Jeff Hyman, who, who runs the Bundesliga stuff. Zach Kenworthy used to hunt, come in, done a great job uh, with, with Champions League this season. Obviously, at NBC, you had Pierre Moussa sort of leading the ship in a big way. Adam Littlefield does a fantastic job. Uh, I work with him on a handful of occasions. You've got a lot of these guys now. Um, who are good TV producers and love and understand the sport, which, again, that was not very prevalent in the early days. You had, same as announcers, a lot of people who uh, were either good at TV and didn't know soccer or vice versa. Maybe they loved soccer. Maybe they were inexperienced in TV. And so, um, you know, as much as he he sort of hates the public um, appreciation of what he does, 
Shaw's been a huge figure in me and in my growth as a broadcaster. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and yeah, he he deserves a lot of the credit for what I think is both with NBC and now at Fox. I, I feel incredibly proud of the work that we have done as MLS broadcasters, a whole lot of us. And I think the, uh, Shaw definitely deserves a lot of that credit. How does it work with you and the different partners that you work with? Now with MLS, it's often Alexi Lalas. Uh, the recent U.S. national team game out in San Jose, it was Stu Holden and Landon Donovan in a three-person booth. How does that work as you build a relationship with a partner? It's an interesting thing because I very rarely have ever been in a situation where I'm consistently with the same guy all the time, oftentimes because I'm just doing different games. So I might have Alexi on the weekend for MLS, and I'll have Brad maybe or Stu midweek uh, for for Champions League or for Bundesliga. Uh, and NBC, it was sort of a rotation between Kyle Martino, Robbie Earl, and Robbie Musto and, and working those guys in. But we, I mean, there's a long, long list. And I went through this week sort of thinking through, could I name everyone? I'm pretty confident I can, that I've worked with. Um, and so on the one hand, you sort of go, and, I, and I've sort of had this conversation with my bosses of, you know, is there a value to... You know, Joe Buck and Troy Aikman have been working together for what fifteen some odd years now, um, week in week out. And then obviously Joe goes to baseball and has John Smoltz there. But is there a value to developing that partnership, or also too, is there a value to having different voices and different perspectives? Because you get a very different game from Alexi than you do from Brad, than you do from Stu, than you do from Kyle Martina, that whoever you know, and and getting different sets of eyeballs on these things, and and I sort of I, I see both sides of it as as much as in some ways, it, it'd be good um, to develop sort of a, a, a regular uh, camaraderie with someone and and build that up over a partnership over a period of years. I also understand too that it is sort of fun to get different guys in and get different viewpoints on stuff, and what ends up happening now. I've done enough that whether it's Alexi or Brad or Stu, it's easy. It's it's you know it clicks back into place immediately because we've done enough games, and that that takes time. And I'm a big believer in the quality of the work you do on air is directly related to the quality of your relationship off air. And mm-hmm. and and having a friendship, you know, and you've been on our trips, spending time together in cars, at restaurants, you know, just sort of building that that camaraderie, having conversations sometimes about the game, sometimes about life. Right. Um, and I think that brings a lot to the game because I think, you know, and it's again one of those sort of theories on sports broadcasting that you, you will hear a lot when you work in this business is two dudes on bar stools. And the idea being that the best sports broadcasting is you're, it's like you're sitting there at a bar watching a game and the two guys next to you, you're just sort of talking about the game. It's just they happen to be a professional broadcaster and an ex-player. But, but having that type of conversation with the audience conversation with each other about what's going on and so and listen it's incredibly fun because that's part of the thing too for me how surreal it is that i get to do this and it really is (laughs) think of i mean but think about who i get to work like i get to work regularly with alexi lawless like my son is growing up with an uncle alexi like that's his buddy and this is the original rock star of american soccer um the 2002 world cup was for me the seminal moment of you know, I'm becoming increasingly a soccer fan, and now it's like I'm signed, sealed, and delivered for life. So guess who I've gotten to work with? Brian McBride, originally at Fox, was my first partner significantly with them. Mm-hmm. And then Brad Friedel, and then Landon Donovan. Are you kidding me? <laughs> um, and all of these people, and, and you know, Kyle Martino is someone who, and, and I, you and I spoke before he did this, this podcast with you, does not deserve, or, I'm sorry, does not receive 
nearly enough credit for what a ridiculously good broadcaster he is and how well he knows this yeah. stuff and his ability to go back and forth and do various roles. And, and he pushed me in, in a great way when I came in to work with him for a year and a half. He made me a better broadcaster, as did, I mean, Robbie Earle, who at the time, we sort of didn't really know who Robbie Earle was, if I'm being honest, like mm-hmm. our, our little group at the Timbers. And those first few weeks in 2011 – we're going into press boxes and people are freaking out that like Robbie Earl's there. And I remember Pat Brown, our director, and I at one point being like, I think this guy's a big deal. And it sort of grew from there. But he's so unassuming about it. He, he is the last person in the world to sort of be like, when I played this and this. Um, but Robbie was hugely influential for me as a broadcaster. He fought a lot of fires for me mm-hmm. when I was being sort of a young, stupid idiot in my early days as a Timbers broadcaster. Um, and he's been a wonderful mentor. Brian Dunseth is another you know, people forget too. Brian Dunseth at one time was the play-by-play voice of MLS on Fox Soccer Channel, which is sort mm-hmm. of lost to the sands of time. But he has been same sort of thing. He was the one that took my hand when I was this young kid. Who, if anyone knew who I was, it was just as the Timbers announcer. And now I'm trying to walk into Sporting Kansas City, and I'm trying to walk into the New York Red Bulls. I'm trying to walk into the Houston Dynamo and get these coaches and players to sit down with me and talk to me. Dunny was he was sort of the skeleton key into MLS for me. And but also too as a wonderful role model of how to do this job well, mm-hmm. but also how to be a good husband, how to be a good father at the same time, which can be hard to do, and not everyone gets that balance right. So so Dunny has been a huge influence on me as someone who for a long time I was watching on TV and sort of admiring. I remember the first time he called him, like Brian Dunseth's calling me. How crazy is this? So <laughs> I've been so lucky. And and the the thing that's so funny with Stuart Holden is that same sort of thing. I'm watching him from afar as a player. We're all sort of following his trials and tribulations of his injuries. And then the summer of 2014, he was sort of in between, do I, he's rehabbing an injury, am I trying to make it back or not? And it sort of came up, do you want to do some games? Sure, fine. So we bring him into NBC. The first game we did was Chicago Fire at the San Jose Earthquakes. Uh, Frank Klope, no, uh, Frank Yallops, sorry, return to San Jose with the fire. Mm -hmm. And, you know, sometimes it's hit and miss. I mean, you got an ex-player do they really want to invest themselves in it? Are they really going to do the work to do this? Or are they just going to sort of sit there and, yeah, yeah, fine, roll the ball out and play? Let alone that NBC role where you're down on the field, you're doing 8 billion things, you're trying to call it from a field podium. Right. And Stu could not have been, from day one, more invested in the process. It was it was incredible. I want to learn. What can I do better? How can I do this? He's asking questions in the production meeting. So it's been fun with Stu since I was there at the beginning with him to see him grow into this fantastic announcer. And one of the differences with him, you know, I am a lot younger than a lot of these guys. It has sort of been fun with Stu, um, you know, and he's got a, a young daughter, a little bit younger than my son and stuff like that. So, yeah, I'm I'm so blessed that I've gotten to work with these amazing broadcasters and people I've grown up as a fan of and by the way they seem to like me and I'm kind of friends with them too like it's the whole thing is a giant fantasy it's crazy it is very cool as much as we love the guys the partners you've worked with is there part of you that someday would be interested in doing a one-man call like the more traditional no we see in Uh, England (laughs) no not right no because I it doesn't I'd like to get their perspective. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I enjoy when the moments when I'm asking, you know, hey, Brad, how have they flipped this game around? It's because I want to know. Yeah. Um, and, and I I enjoy – and I, you know, at NBC, it was such a surreal thing that you're in this booth by yourself. And and you've got Kyle or the Robbies or Dunny or whoever down on the field. Um, 
I don't really have a huge interest in it because I would get sick of my own voice mm-hmm. over the course of 90 minutes. And, and I like to have a little bit of back and forth. I like to have a different perspective. So yeah, at, at the expense of you know costing myself fame or money at some point down the road, I can't say I have any particular interest in, in you know flying solo on this stuff, no. One thing I wanted to ask you about is we are blessed these days with the amount of soccer on American television. You've got Fox doing it. You've got ESPN, uh, be in sports. Um, you've got uh, NBC. And one thing that, you know, everyone's got their opinions out there in terms of fans, and I get that. Um, but one thing that Fox, I think, has done, and, and I'll say it again, you and I both work for Fox, so keep that in mind. <laughs> Full disclosure. Yeah, exactly. Is that Fox clearly has a a strategy, I would say, of using American voices who now have an organic history in the sport. And I would argue that Fox does that more than NBC, more than BN, more than, to an extent, ESPN, even though Taylor Twellman, they had called the Euro 2016 final last summer, which I thought was terrific. Um What's your sense of that Fox strategy and, and your part in it? So this is an example of where if we were sitting over beers, I would have a, a very different answer to this question than the one I'm willing to give you publicly because <laughs> this, is, this is very dicey territory for me. Um, it, it has been tremendously empowering, which has been wonderful and has allowed me to do things I didn't think I was going to get the opportunity to do. Mm-hmm. As I mentioned, when I came in in 2012, both the Fox and NBC, this was off the back of, you know, 2010 was that first World Cup where ESPN, very much the vanguard, the trendsetter, um, you know, and they and they had gone from Dave O'Brien in 2006 to sort of Martin Tyler, Ian Dark, and all English-accented announcers in 2010. Not for entirely illegitimate reasons, and, and it's it's a much larger, broader conversation that we could have as, as to why. Uh, although, as ever, for me, J.P. Della Camera, he's on Mount Rushmore. He's the GOAT. He has been a, an incredible friend and mentor to me and a huge figure to me. And so um, there, there's that personal side of it, too, of a guy that got the short end of the stick on a lot of different occasions, which has always been unfortunate, which is part of why I so enjoyed that the 2015 Women's World Cup was his, and that wonderful moment of of the U.S. winning in this record audience was him. I thought that was amazing. Yeah. But anyway, both Fox and NBC, it was they wanted, and it was sold to me as we want to find a young American that can come in and call soccer, but but someone who sort of represents this generation that has grown up with the sport in a way that prior generations just simply haven't. You know, at a still impressionable age. The sport was all around me, and and you know, yes, absolutely, it is a subjective art form. It, it as with anything you consume with your ears, uh, music or or whatever, some people like it, some people don't, and it's for deeply personal reasons. And I totally understand that. But I also completely reject, in the strongest possible terms, the idea that because I'm an American, because my voice sounds a certain way or I don't have a specific accent, or I don't do this, or I, whatever, that I like, I can't call soccer games. I don't know the proper way. I think that is utter nonsense. And again, I think that's something that I have been um, sort of emboldened in that view, the more of the great big giant world of soccer that I've seen. Now, here's one of the interesting parts of this. One of the, the chief drivers of this mentality at Fox is our boss, Jaunty Whitehead 
who is English. And that sometimes throws people for a loop. And Jonti gave an interview uh, on Alexi's podcast, I think about this time last year, talking about this thing, which was, I, I think, completely misconstrued and, and twisted uh, in entirely inaccurate ways by certain people. One of, I, I believe, and, and I've had this conversation with him too, one of his influences, yes, he was a, a huge figure in building Sky Sports into the behemoth it is now. And then he goes over to Qatar and he's helping to build out some of the sort of Arabic but English language coverage of soccer while also too trying to help out some of the Arabic language broadcasting. And, and I, in my, my hesitancy to speak for him, I believe and I've interpreted from him one of the influences he's had with the idea that he learned there was you need to do this specific to the culture in which it's in. Yeah. Um, and, and, and the, the, the Arabic culture, say, will want their sports broadcasting, but also will just sort of view things in a uniquely specific way in the same way that every different part of the world, again, in Me- Mexico is a very specific soccer culture. And they call games and they talk about games and they present TV in an entirely different way than you would see on the BBC. Neither is right. Neither is wrong. Each is a product of their specific culture. And yet for some reason, and I know some of the reasons why, and again, it's a very long answer, we have this sense of what we do in America is wrong, and it, it must be imported. And and again, as I said, I've been hugely influenced by those imports, and, and I feel like I try to draw from each of those things uh, in particular ways but under no circumstances do we not have the right to have our own particular melting pot version of an American soccer culture. And it has been a wonderful thing from Fox to be able to say, go and do that. And that takes different forms. And again, they work with me intensely on certain things. And there are certain ways that, you know, John T has tried to sort of craft me and mold me. There are certain ways that David Neal who's our executive producer for, for the World Cup, who comes from an, an NBC Olympics world, but he also comes from a Univision Deportes world. Right. And there are, there are influences that he's had that he's tried to mold me and craft me with. And, and so all of these things come together, and there's no reason why I can't call a soccer game just the same way anyone else is. I might do it differently, and I might not do it in the way that you've grown up liking and enjoying, and that's fine. I can't control that. Um, and, and to be honest, I don't get... When I come into the Champions League games, I've gotten more of it than I have certainly for a long time of the, I just, I hate the sound of your voice. You don't know what you're talking about. Give me the European guys back. And it's sort of like, all right, whatever, fine. Um, but by the same token, again, and I, and I, it, it's hard for me because I don't want to be arrogant or boastful about it. But like, why, you know, my, my growing up in the sport is no particularly different from anyone else growing up in this sport in any other part of the world. And that's going to be any more anyone else growing up in America. That's going to be the case. As you say, we have access to everything around us. And by the way, we have MLS. And by the way, we have NASL and USL, which I think is wonderful. And so that's going to influence me too, as well as, you know, I'm last night. Yeah, I'm watching the NBA playoffs and I'm watching playoff hockey and I'm sort of drawing things from that. So I think it's wonderful what Fox has done. It rubs some people the wrong way. I think Fox, some of it, yeah, some of it, we've we've made mistakes and we've gotten things wrong, uh, including stuff that I've done. Um, some of it, though, too, is just people sort of have a thing in their head. They have a complex about maybe what Fox used to be or maybe what Fox represents now as compared to what NBC does or what ESPN does. But I can tell you as someone who takes this very, very seriously, as someone who has tried to really – 
understand the big broad world of soccer and of soccer broadcasting and as someone for that matter who worked at NBC for a couple of years and I love that place and I, and I have so many friends there and I was made such a better broadcaster for my time there but I could not be more proud of the work that we do at Fox and I stand the work that we do at Fox up against anything anyone else has done whether it's an MLS broadcast whether it's our Champions League work whether it's the this upcoming World Cup and I can tell you and not necessarily you, Grant, but like people listening, the the types of things that we're talking about and we're discussing, we're going to blow the doors off. And I get that there are people that are really nervous about this idea that Fox and not ESPN has this next World Cup. And I can guarantee you, yeah, we're going to do some stuff that maybe is unexpected, but we're going to do stuff that no one has ever done before on a scale that no one has ever done before. And the fact that I might get to be a small part of that is incredibly exciting for me. And so that's where I do... I do get a little bit upset and I do sometimes need to just put my phone away and stay off Twitter because I have an immense, immense amount of pride in what I and all of my friends and colleagues in this big giant and Fox soccer is much bigger than people realize it is right. what we do day in, day out. And, and I will defend that angrily uh, as long as I have to to whoever I have to. <laughs> Tell me a little bit. What can you tell the listeners about what Fox is planning on doing from Russia, both this summer with Confederations Cup? And I know not every decision has been made or announced about the World Cup in 2018, but what's your understanding of, of what we can look forward to? Well, obviously, it's the degree of difficulty of this World Cup is very different from from prior World Cups. Not that there wasn't a huge degree of difficulty in Brazil or, or South Africa, because there was, but I think obviously being in Russia... Um, whatever the the sort of you know geopolitical climate is going to be in June of 2018, um, you know the the time difference, all these things, there's a lot of moving pieces to it. But the thing that's been really cool for me to see is that the, the this World Cup, it's not being it's not a Fox Soccer thing. It's not even a Fox Sports thing. This has become a 21st century Fox thing, and I think that's something important for people to understand. You know, we we are one small part of this sort of behemoth company, right? It's it's television production, it's movie production, it's music, it's all these things in addition to what we do on FS1. Um, and the impression that I have given, and I've seen it, you're talking about buy-in on a resources level, on an energy level, on a money level from the very, very top of this entire corporation to, as I said, blow the doors off what anyone has ever seen from a World Cup production with immense respect and admiration for what ESPN has done to make the World Cup what it is, including a lot of Fox people spending time with ESPN in Rio uh, three years ago to, mm -hmm. to go through that stuff. So it's in no way a disrespectful view towards what ESPN has done over a period of years. And obviously when you have people like Alexi that have come from there, um, you know, for me, Bob Lee is another face on Mount Rushmore right. uh, of American soccer broadcasting. And so it, it is with reverence, but it also is with a sense of ambition of what can we do that no one's ever done before. And things as simple, some of the plans that I've seen throw out of if, if you're worried about the volume of soccer on your TV and of conversation on your TV during that World Cup, don't worry about it. You're going to be sick of us soon enough because the amount of stuff that they're – and the types of things that they're talking about putting on. And not just on FS1, but you've got the Fox Network too. That's a, that's a really important chip that we can mm -hmm. play. The partnership we have with National Geographic 
and our ability to look at Russia and this World Cup from different angles and, and the amount of time people have been spending in Russia already. Um, you know, the, the volume of just sort of game announcers we're talking about. The renderings of the set, which are ridiculous, that, that you know, and everyone remembers what we had in Vancouver um, at the Women's World Cup, and this is going to be a whole different level. The people they're talking to, and by the way, there's a great anecdote they shared with us to give you a sense of how this is different. Uh, our set location in Vancouver for the Women's World Cup went by a couple of our Fox people walking around Vancouver going, hey, this would be a fun place to do it. Going into like the Tourism Commission office, 15 minutes later, signed, sealed, delivered, sure, build your set here, just pay the electric bill. <laughs> uh, it's not quite the same thing in Russia. I mean, this is going all the way up to like, you know, do with the initials of VP, that, that sort of, the, you know, who gets the final say in these things. So it's a much more involved process, and what they've shared with us of that has been sort of fascinating, mm -hmm. fascinating to hear. But even as simple as, you know, when we were in Columbus doing the U.S.-Mexico qualifier, there was like a documentary film crew from another part of 21st Century Fox. I think it's like the, their enterprise unit or something they called it, doing behind-the-scenes filming of different things going on, like our production meeting, the press conference. Mm. And I'm talking to the guy, and he's like, oh, yeah, there's like six crews of us worldwide doing all – I mean it's, it's, it's crazy, the volume and the scale and the scope. And as I said, the, it's the entire corporation that is all in on this thing, which is incredibly exciting, by the way, because in all of our living memory – the World Cup was a very small potatoes type thing, right? And soccer was was not something that a major media corporation would have said this is a priority for us. But they have absolutely made this World Cup a priority, and that is so exciting. And and it trickles down as well to the Champions League stuff we're going to be doing in the next few weeks, and Confederations Cup, Copa America last year, Gold Cup, MLS, whatever it is. That's it's such an exciting time to be involved in American soccer and to be involved in American soccer broadcasting. And and, and again, Fox has never, I, I don't necessarily think, received all the credit that they deserved amidst all the other stuff for, for creating a 24-hour soccer channel, you know, at a time when no one was doing that and, and putting these games on, you know, putting games on, on network television and doing all these things. I mean, so now with the World Cup, it's a chance to push it one further. And as I said, to get to then be a part of that as someone who, you know, I, I took with great responsibility my role as the street preacher of soccer on the radio for years. And now I maybe get to do that a little bit sort of, you know, from a countrywide standpoint. And oh my gosh, is that so exciting. You've got me fired up just talking here. Um... I, I, I couldn't honestly. And the Confederations Cup, by the way, um, what a huge opportunity it is for those of us that are going to be going just to sort of get a feel for it. I mean, and, and, you know, I'm, I'm so excited for that. I mean, that's the thing. This, this, I, I'm checking off like all of my bucket list stuff in, in a span of a year and a half right now. This is crazy. <laughs> uh, just a couple more questions here. We're winding down. Really appreciate you taking this much time. One thing that you and I both do is we work in language, whether we're writing or, on television and obviously we've talked a little bit about American versus the rest of the world in soccer terms here and obviously there's lingo that you hear often outside the U.S. and then sometimes only inside the U.S. connected to soccer. How do you work with that in terms of word choices? Are there words that we'll never hear you use or how, how is how does that work? My, my general viewpoint has always been if it's not something that I would say naturally, um, I'm not going to use it on air. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and I've developed a sort of a pidgin English when it comes to soccer terminology because, yeah, I've grown up in America and, and in American sports, but I've also, too, you know, I've heard the word nil used for more than half of my life. And so for me, it is more natural, as crazy as it might seem, to say one nil than to say one zero or one zip to the point that, you know, when I was on the radio here in Portland, I would do the sports updates and I would be giving baseball scores and I'd say the Reds leading the Indians 3-0 in the seventh inning. And my host, John Canzano, was like, what on earth did you just say? <laughs> but it, it was natural for me. So the idea being that that if you have to think about it and if you have to sort of change the word in your head, almost like you're you're translating between language, you're doing it wrong. That That's my personal feeling on it. And so it ends up being a mix of those things. So I'm not going to say football probably. Maybe only rarely because for me, football means something different. And by the way, to the haters, soccer is the world. It's still used in England, by the way. It's the word you taught us. So stop with this soccer as an American. You know, you don't mock the Italians for calling it calcio. Yet for some reason, we get a beat over head. We call it soccer. Anyway, sorry. Um, again, that's that's over beer is a different rant. So anyway, I end up using a mix of all those things. The the ones that I'll say pitch and field in equal measure. Um, boots and cleats I have sort of a hard time with going back and forth that's what I tend to struggle with for some reason Mm. Um, but generally yeah my viewpoint is if it's something that I would say in conversation without just thinking about it I'm going to use it on air if it's something that I'm trying to sort of you know make some sort of affectation for whatever reason then it feels disingenuous to me and and I'm not going to do it or even some if I have to be thinking about it um, you know when when I filled in a couple times for Rebecca Lowe on NBC's Premier League uh, broadcasts, the NBC did a big thing of they wanted it very uniform and they were really trying, I think, just to get buy-in from people at NBC Sports into soccer. So part of that was really selling them on the lingo of it. And so they've been, you know, everyone's been using the word table forever and ever coming in. It's like during the Sochi Olympics I came in and I keep saying standings on air. And it sort of people were like, it was, it, it, you know, it was jarring to them. I'm like, I'm sorry, but just for me, it's the word that naturally comes out and if I then I'm having to think about saying table as opposed to standings, and maybe I'm more likely to screw something else up as opposed to just sort of doing it naturally. So that that's always been my viewpoint on it. Fascinating. Um, do you have any catchphrases? I try not to, in the sense that I when I was first calling high school football when I was a senior in high school, I had developed what I thought was this going to be a great you know signature touchdown call. And then like two months in, we finally figured out how to tape record our broadcast. And I listened back to it and it was terrible. So I've had an aversion to catchphrases ever since. I, it's the same sort of a thing and it's a balance here. I don't like the idea, and I know broadcast, some broadcasters do this because I've seen it, of writing out little one-liners or little turns of phrase and sort of having it prepared. Um, I also think too, I remember watching years ago, Goal TV had like a, a goals review show that you could watch on demand of all the different like South American leagues. And I'm watching this realizing it's every league, every country, every game, it's the same guy calling the game and he's giving the exact same call to every single goal. And I'm but every goal is different for me and every goal should be called different at least slightly cuz they all, you know, they're different in their circumstance what it, if whether it's 5-0 as compared to 2-1, first minute as compared to the 90th minute and I believe you have to allow yourself a leeway to call things differently in different situations and to have it be sort of rehearsed or written down or pre-planned, I think sort of undermines the spontaneity of, I just the other day, and I'm spacing on his name, but the longtime Pittsburgh Penguins radio announcer 
had a wonderful article actually on the Players Tribune where he said a lot of his you know, little catchphrases and turns of phrase, even though it sounds like a contradiction, the idea is they're nonsensical because sometimes when you watch sports, it doesn't make sense. And you it is sort of nonsensical. You're reacting emotionally. And so I think you have to allow yourself the ability to do that. Now, that being said, you don't want to be unprepared. The danger is the moment comes and you as an announcer blow it. You either stumble over something or you stammer or you don't have anything to say at all. Um, and that's something that, that you know, Jonty has worked with me on is the idea of, you know, particularly for big goals, you have to have something as an announcer to just sort of stamp it. Doesn't mean that you're making it about you and what you're saying, but also at a certain point, why are we paying you to hold a microphone? So you have to give me something there and understanding that balance of the two. And so I've absolutely gone into certain situations. On most games, I will visualize in my head what might happen in certain moments? What might I say if this occurs? What might I be thinking of? Sometimes just trying to remind myself, if Bradley Wright Phillips scores today, he's he it's his 70th goal mm-hmm. uh, and maybe the third fastest guy. So sort of have that in mind. Um, you know, when we, we did like three or four games where Landon Donovan was sitting on the MLS all-time goal scoring mark and he didn't score any of those four and we still give him a hard time. <laughs> um, but I had written down on my sheet... I think it was the all-time MLS goal-scoring king because I wanted to capture the moment right but also do it quickly and then be able to get out of the way. And the danger was if I didn't think of something for that moment, I would blow it and I wouldn't want that. So so there is a balance of I want spontaneity but I also want to make sure I'm not unprepared for the moment. And then there are other silly things of where the the thing I do going to break at the end of the half, 45 minutes down, 45 to go, I have no idea how that started or why. I just do it now because it's sort of fun, and I've started to get tweets from people like, oh, thank you. I didn't know how much time was left in the game. That's very <laughs> helpful of you. I'm like, all right, whatever. <laughs> so so little things like that that I sort of work in that just, you know, because to, I guess to sell it's me calling the game as opposed to someone else, but but it's a balance in there that I don't want to also overdo sort of being overly scripted because then it just sort of sounds fake. Do you have any pet peeves when you're watching soccer broadcasting? Yes, None of which I'm going to tell you because, unfortunately, it'll be too easy for people to draw a connection between. <laughs> but absolutely. No, I, and I, I'm, I'm terrible to watch a game with because I want to listen to the announcers and I want to hear what they're doing and what they're saying. Um, but I'm also a complete jerk. I, I have no qualms in saying that. Of I'll also sit there and be like, ah, you know. Compl-. So, so, yeah. But, I, but I'm not going to be stupid enough to go into any of that. In the um, a couple more questions here. Um, one of them is... Uh, J.P. Delacamera, who we talked about earlier, uh, he was on the podcast last year. Go back and listen to it, listeners, if you haven't, because it was wonderful. Yes, do that. Um, he was pretty vocal about a certain topic. He thought, he said that he thinks U.S. national team announcers should always be American. And I will preface this by saying... I'm friends with Ian Dark. I've Stop th- trying to get me in trouble, Grant. He's, Come on, man. <laughs> Ian Dark has eaten in my house before. He's a wonderful man and does a wonderful job. Do you agree with JP or not? Again, and, and, and I will give as much of this publicly as I can because I do think it is a very slippery slope. On the one hand, I think there's a compelling argument to be given that, yes, if it's a U.S. national team game, uh, as the same as as you want your local announcer to be someone that has an affiliation with the team, that's the best local announcers are guys that have been there a while that you feel like are on your side. I, I think that is aided by having 
an American call a U.S. national team game because I can guarantee you the reverse would not be true. You would not have someone non-English calling an England game in England. You just wouldn't. Right. And anywhere else – again, that's something unique to America that you would ever sort of even contemplate that idea. Where I think the slippery slope comes in though, particularly in our current political climate, I think you have to be careful how much you play that sort of nationalism angle of mm-hmm. uh, only people you know I think you understand what I mean by that so right. so that's and and i I deeply believe that because again, I think it's the melting pot nature of our American soccer culture that makes it good and makes it unique and makes it special. so I hesitate by the same time to say no, you can't have someone else. What I will say is this, and and listen, this is going to be a fascinating topic of conversation potentially for people that are so inclined, this sort of cottage industry of sports media criticism. And I know that if I'm in this role, I'm going to be dragged into this, is this conversation of we've had essentially, even though Martin Tyler, I think, had one of the games, essentially you've had two World Cups in a row with Ian Dark as the voice of the U.S. national team. And his call of Landon Donovan's goal uh, in South Africa as one of the iconic moments in American soccer history. By the same token, you're also going to have Telemundo have the Spanish language rights next year, changing from Univision. Andres Cantor, legendary figure in American mm-hmm. soccer broadcasting, huge influence on me, by the way. And the fact that his son Nico told me on Twitter the other week that I've been an influence on him <laughs> is crazy and amazing. I, I, it was so cool to see. Uh, and I've met Andres just the one time very briefly during the Copa America last summer. Mm-hmm. You're going to have him, presumably, calling the U.S. games for Telemundo. And so it's that triangle I said, right? Here's Ian Dark, legend. Here's Andres Cantor, legend. Here's John Strong, bald kid from Portland. And, and where does that all fit? And I, it's, I, I, it, it's hard for me to argue for myself in that because, A, it's self-serving, and, B, again, I think it becomes a slippery slope. What I will say is this. Beyond whatever my qualities I think I have as a broadcaster, I also, too, I have lived this stuff. I, I remember watching in 94 vividly all those games and sort of being crushed in 98. I was scream, screaming at my television in the middle of the night in 2002 um, in those games against Portugal and, and the game against Mexico. Um, 2006, Claudio Reyna absolutely was fouled, leading to Ghana's winning goal. And it wasn't called and it should have been, and the U.S. should have gone through. Um, 2010, same sort of thing. I, I was sort of crawled up into a fetal position ball as Donovan was scoring that, going, oh, my God, please score. Don't blow this. All of these things, you know what I mean? I, I mm-hmm. live this all. And, and so not to say that it is more in me than anyone else or anything else, but, but this stuff's in my blood. And that's where that idea of whenever I call any national team game, particularly as we start talking about these big ones and maybe even the World Cup, that's been my whole life sort of pointing toward it. So, so to the extent that I am more or less qualified than someone else – is hard for me really to say. All that I can sort of promise is that, you know, listen, as I said, this means something important and special to me in the same way that it means something important and special to all the millions of people who are going to be tuning into those games. Two more questions for you. First one, I remember being in the car with you uh, when we were... Where is this going? (laughs) (laughs) Not as dicey as the Twitter handle, strong at night, by the way. Yeah! Um... I remember being in the car with you at one point. We were doing a box broadcast of an MLS game somewhere. And you mentioned that one of the reasons you've been doing all these Europa League games midweek over the last few years, and if we're being honest, you don't have to do all of them, is that you were already 
preparing for the World Cup years in advance and thinking that getting to know all these players, the names, the pronunciations, just getting the experience was a good thing for you. And I, I was very struck listening to you and thinking to myself, this guy is really looking at the long game and preparing for the World Cup many, many years down the road. Uh, is that how you've approached all of this? Well, I, I, there's a couple of answers I can give to that. I mean, number one, yeah, I've I've been thinking about all, again, this is the only job I've ever wanted to do. So I've been thinking very critically about all these things for a very long time in the absence of, say, having a social life in college. <laughs> but it worked out for me in the end. And I've got a wonderful wife and, and an amazing son and all that stuff. So I'm fine. Um, so So part of it is, yeah, I've always been thinking about how do I get there? How do I make myself? How do I be? And again, this is subjective nature, but my goal is to be the best play-by-play broadcaster that this sport has ever seen in this country to whatever the heck that actually means. But I, I, I work hard every single day to make that the case. Also, too, I, I think with me, the Europa League opportunity was sort of thrust upon me. It was when Fox was bringing me in. It was, you know, we want to put you in charge of Europa League because you could host and call games we want to team you and Brian McBride together. Go at it. And and it was a little intimidating at first. I mean, I've been watching European soccer. My, I mean, I remember the, uh, I think it was the 01 Champions League final was the first one I remember watching. Um, uh, Bayern Munich winning. It was, you know, back when it was on like ESPN2 sort of midweek on a Wednesday. And I've been watching ever since. And and so going into it was just because like, oh my gosh, of course, I get to call these amazing games. And that first season we're calling Liverpool and Tottenham and, Lyon and Inter Milan and Chelsea, it was incredible, and we've done it ever since. And you will not find a bigger proponent of the Europa League than me. I love that competition. It sort of bums me out I'm not doing it this year because I moved to the Champions League. Mm. But there was also 100% awareness that it was making me a better broadcaster. Games are at a higher pace, higher level of technical quality than MLS. It's the honest truth. We could be okay with that. Um, but also, too, is exposing me to that world because I do think in the same token as, yeah, I'm, I might be thrust into a conversational spotlight uh, with regards to the World Cup final. It might even be possible if maybe I keep calling Champions League games this season and the final's coming up in a little bit that I might be thrust into a conversational spotlight in that regard. When, it, you know, again, English announcers like Martin Tyler or Gus Johnson, you know, and that type of stuff and, and all mixed into that. And that's sort of my point is that, listen, I... I do feel like I have the qualifications for this stuff. I, I do feel like I put my work and my time in um, calling, you know, Tottenham Hotspur versus Sheriff live from Moldova uh, in a studio in L.A. You know what I mean? And 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 it's been great though too because it does make me feel that much more prepared going into even the Copa America. You know, I've seen these guys Europa League, Bundesliga game, whatever else. You know, and and. So that's where I do feel proud that I've tried to put in my time as a fan and as a broadcaster. I'm not an expert in everything. I'm not going to pretend that I am. But also, too, you know, as these big things approach, you know, I haven't been thrust into this willy-nilly. I haven't been unprepared. If anything, it's been me trying to convince some of my big bosses mm -hmm. that I can do it. But it's been because of, do, you know, immersing yourself 24 hours a day, 365 days a year in this great big giant world of soccer in the same way that, you know, a lot of the other announcers have had the opportunity to do in the same way that a lot of American announcers have not had the opportunity to do, either because they didn't grow up in the right time or because they also have baseball responsibilities or football or basketball responsibilities. And it's hard to catch up for a lifetime of watching this sport 
in a matter of two years when you're also being pulled in eight different directions. And in the same way that you know anyone who's called a World Series or a Super Bowl in America has lived that sport for their life, that's a huge component of that. And that's where, again, too, you know, I feel that I've lived this my whole life. So, so regardless of your subjective judgment of me as an American as compared to being English as compared to speaking Spanish – the basic qualifications I, f- I feel like I have to be able to, to do this stuff in a proper way. Last question I have in my notes here. Ask John about collapsed lung 2011. <laughs> so this was an interesting story. So to set the scene, 2011, here I am doing this, this dream opportunity. I'm calling Timbers Games. I'm 26. I'm like, oh, my gosh, I'm get- this is amazing. I'm calling the Timbers Games on TV. So that September, and I'll, I'll abridge it enough because uh, we've already gone on for way too long, and my <laughs> wife keeps texting me like, when are you going to be done? Um, I think we're going out to, to brunch today. So I get – I contract pneumonia, not sure how, um, like 48 hours before the Timbers are supposed to play at Philadelphia. I'm like deathly ill. Glenn Davis has to reroute. He's leaving his vacation on the Virgin Islands early because of an impending hurricane, and he reroutes to Philly instead of Houston to call the game. And then rushing – and this is how stupid I am – rushing down the stairs as I have pneumonia because the Broncos are about to kick off the season opener against the Raiders and I have to make sure I see the actual kickoff. I, I sort of uh, cause this coughing fit, which causes a little thing inside my chest to burst, which gives me a collapsed lung, which they think they fix, then it recollapses. And at one point in this process, by the way, the doctor in talking to me is going, you know, one of the scenarios here, because we're struggling to fix this thing, one of the scenarios is you might not ever be able to fly in an airplane again, which, as you can attest, would sort of make doing this job difficult, How given that I'm on an airplane every single week. And so it's flashing through my head going, I wonder if Merritt Paulson would buy me a Madden cruiser. <laughs> um, now, as it happens, and I sort of push the guy back because I'm like, uh, so this is – when you say not flying in an airplane, what you don't know is that means that my dream job gets taken away from me. I've only begun to do it for like six months, so that would be fun. Um, and I give the guy credit. He, he looked up. Uh, research into what they call spontaneous pneumothorax in deep sea divers and airline pilots. And they devise uh, this sort of uh, surgical remedy that they did to fix it, we hope permanently, sure seems that way, and sort of prevent other things from happening. And obviously, in the, and I missed about a month of games. I came back way too soon, drove to Vancouver to call a Timbers game, and I was still like pale. I'd lost 15 pounds. I looked like I was like a little kid wearing his dad's suit. It was a mess, um, but but I ended up sort of you know and and now yeah I fly do all these things whatever else but there was there was a stretch there where wow. I was like I just got to do this finally and now you're telling me it's going to be taken away. Uh, my, she was then my fiance. That's why we have one of our dogs is because she was like you know thought I was going to die or something like that. Um, so it was yeah it was this crazy situation but it, it's that that's the one sort of weird thing in looking back of of listen I'll be honest I've been privileged that I've sort of got every break in the book I had you know I parents growing up that I could go and do all of this incredibly unpaid broadcast work and still get a good college education and not have a ton of debt I've had all of these great breaks right place right time to get all these things that was the only moment where it was like huh okay this is sort of a sideways turn on this whole deal um but it was yeah it was it was sort of funny I remember at one point too the uh, the second surgery I had, the Timbers were playing that night against San Jose, and I get up from recovery for the second half. I watch the game. Next morning, cannot remember the game whatsoever. So I watch it back again, 
And then that Saturday, the Timbers are playing their next game, and I realized, hey, when did they play their last game? So the anesthesia had taken so much effect that I, I like rewatched the same game three times. So those are sort of my memories of this very goofy um, scenario. So yeah, now I've got uh, fun scars, and and Merritt didn't have to buy me a bus, so it worked out for everyone. That's good to hear. I'm glad that you're still thank you with us and doing all these games, John. Please <laughs> please tell your wonderful wife Nicole that I apologize for taking you away from her on your like one day off. No, forever. it's fine. I'll be, I'll be home later in the week. It's fine. And uh, thank you so much for joining the podcast. Grant, I appreciate it greatly. Thank you for wasting an hour and a half of your life with me. Thanks for listening to the Planet Football Podcast. I'd like to thank John Strong, as well as everyone at Digital Media and Sports Illustrated who supports this podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, there are other great new and archived episodes you can check out, including my recent interviews with Vicente Lizarazu, Becky Sauerbrunn, Paolo Maldini, Tim Howard, and Jimmy Conrad. Please, if you like the pod, tell your friends, subscribe, and review it on iTunes. It really does help the cause if you do. See you next time. Do you know about the Locked On Podcast Network? The number one daily sports podcast network. Locked On has a daily podcast on every NBA and NFL team, plus a growing lineup of college and MLB teams. You get a daily bite-sized podcast giving you the latest on your team from the local experts. Lakers fans, search Locked On Lakers. Cowboys fans, search Locked On Cowboys. Just search Locked On, your favorite team, on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts, or tell your smart speaker to play podcast Locked On, your favorite team. Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day.